So if your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. We're about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as we kind of talked a little bit about this last week, this is not all of the Sermon on the Mount, and I would probably argue it's not exclusively Sermon on the Mount. And there are some things that we'll see that Jesus addresses today that in other Gospels are private conversations that he had with the disciples. So as Matthew, 35 years after Christ has ascended into heaven, is writing this, he is telling his story, all right? And when you tell your story, you get to put the things in order that you want. <coughs> Any of y'all married to a joke slayer? You know what I'm talking about? They, are, they brutalize jokes. Oh, he's insulted. But you're married to a joke slayer? You are the joke slayer, yeah. Uh, people who are really good at telling jokes, uh, when they sit, hear someone else tell a joke poorly, we're just like, you ruined it. Like, they, they jump to the punchline, and they're like, oh, wait, I missed something. I got to tell you. Um, Matthew gets to tell his own story his own way, and that's what he's doing here. And so I think a bulk of what we're dealing with is, in fact, something that Jesus preached uh, kind of on the mountain. But there are also other things that Matthew says were essentially, in Matthew's mind, were core to who Jesus was as a teacher. And if it didn't happen right at the same time, it's not a problem. It's not. Again, because Matthew is an inspired uh, writer, and he is writing in such a way as to appeal to uh, unbelievers to follow this Jesus, but he's also appealing to believers to follow Christ more. Now, something uh, Terry and I were talking about on the ride home because uh, I always I'm always looking for good critiques, right? Uh, because uh, oftentimes when I teach, I don't get good feedback. I get feedback like that was good or I learned a lot. And I go, okay, well, what did you learn? Well, uh, you know, uh, I had one sweet little old lady. Her name is Miss Ruby. She I pastored her for a dozen years up in Yazoo City, and I would call her and I go, Miss Ruby, how how was the sermon? She says, Preacher, your sermons are like Thanksgiving dinner. I, at the end of it, I feel full, but I couldn't tell you one thing I ate. I'm like, that's not helpful. Um, that's not helpful. Uh, so if, if you're learning something insightful, please, by all means, write it down or say, hey, text me. Go, hey, this was insightful. This was helpful. So this is something that Terry said something to me as we were traveling home yes, last week um, that I failed to mention um, was this. Keep in mind that Matthew is paralleling, is that a word? feels like a word. Running parallel with the Old Testament, the first five books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He is in a parallel plane. And the Ten, Comman uh, the Ten Commandments, we'll see kind of paralleled here today, but uh, what the Ten Commandments were to the ancient Jew, essentially Jesus is presenting to the Christian church our own ethos of how the Christian community ought to look. Last week, I told you um, that if there were a title to this sermon, it could very well have been, Mind Your Attitudes and Motivations. And as we look further into this text, you'll probably see Jesus doesn't diminish the law. He actually amplifies it, right? Because the, the leaders were saying, don't murder. And Jesus turned around and said, what? Don't hate your brother. Yeah, don't be angry with, uh, with your brother. And everybody's like, well, that's a lot harder, all right? And uh, he says, well, you know, uh, what were some other things? He talks about... Um, adultery. Yeah, you know, he talks about murder and adultery, and uh, he, he amplifies these things. He says, you know, you've heard, uh, don't swear by heaven. He says, don't swear at all. Um, just be honest. And that's kind of the motivation he's getting at. The reason why you have to swear so much is because you're... The liar, and uh, and you have to have all of these things worked out, and that's the human condition that Jesus is addressing here. Um, but in verse thirty-eight, where we pick up again, attitudes and motivations that are what we're going to be uh, the overarching theme of Jesus's sermon. And he said in the red letters, verse thirty-eight, "You have heard that it was said," and he kind of again three groups that he's preaching to in this one one big parcel of people. There's the Pharisees dressing all fine, swanky. They're sitting over here. I see y'all moved over to the Pharisee side this week. Y'all were on the crowd side last week. Um, but you have the Pharisees always sitting up front, looking all like they're supposed to, looking right, clean and perfect and prim. 
you've got the disciples who are kind of sitting there trying to learn from Jesus, and then you've got everyone else. You've got the crowds, and in this case, thousands of them, thousands and thousands. Uh, Jesus, you know, you remember, we'll get to this in Matthew, where he fed 5,000, but the text says he fed 5,000 men, uh, which could very possibly mean, um, I mean, it's like counting the men at Disney World. You follow me? How many people are in, in Magic Kingdom on that day? Four, 44,000, right? Only 5,000 men uh, gave themselves up as tribute. But there's children and, and babies and women and all the ones that are not counted. So Jesus is possibly preaching 10, 15, 20,000 people as he is giving this sermon. And he points over to the Pharisees, you've heard it, you, crowd, have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Let's talk about that. What does that mean? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's from the Old Testament, by the way. It's from the, from the Old Testament law. Moses gave that to the Israelites out in the wilderness. I think it means like your punishment or recompense should be equal to the offense. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you get into a fight and you knock someone's tooth out, um, then you have the right to to make that situation just. Now, there are some people who go, well, that's just barbaric, right? Well, maybe, but it actually is a limiting factor. The Jewish law was always limiting what you could do in return. Um, so if Gary and I got into a, a little fisticuff, he knocked my tooth out, what am I, what, what is my right? To knock one of his tooth out. But what is only my right? To knock one tooth out. What if I knock two teeth out? I've gone over the law, right? So I've got to think twice about how I'm going to deal with this. So um, the Pharisees used this kind of as a negative thing, but the Jewish law, when set down by Moses, was a limiting factor going, hey, you can, you can be just. You can make things right, but you can only make them right. You can't go beyond the right. Um, and I think maybe our culture could use a little bit of that right now, right? Some balancing um, of what is good and just and right and making things level. But he says, you've heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, this is a difficult passage to process. But again, Jesus isn't necessarily giving us specific principle or specific things to live, live by. I mean, don't go home, smack your bride, and say, all right, the Bible says you got to turn the other cheek. That's not what it's saying. What is the attitude and motivation when people harm you? To retaliate, but what the Christian heart should be to, to forgive. And that's what Jesus is driving at. You've heard, make it right. I'm telling you, appeal to God, and he will make it right. Continuing in verse 39, or verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt... Let him have your coat also. Now, this is kind of in the, the, the Greek side of things, but the word shirt here is the shirt that men or women would wear closest to their, to their skin. If they're going to sue you for your underwear, give them your outerwear as well. Okay. Now, I don't think this is a prescription for us to come to church in our birthday suits. Again, what's the attitude and motivation? What is Jesus getting at? If someone tries to take something from you, don't be bound down to the stuff. Be working on the relationship. He continues on in verse um, uh, 41. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Does anybody know what this means? Anybody that I'm not married to know what this means? Okay, so that's the principle. What's the specific historical context? Does anybody know? There's a, I think the soldiers at any time, they could stick on mm -hmm. people to get, help them carry their bags. Exactly. And they'd have to go one mile. All right. Or that was the leap. So y'all have been driving on the interstate before, and y'all seen the mile markers, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a U.S. invention. <clears throat> the Romans did this. Every mile had a marker. That way you at any time knew how far you were away from Rome, okay? And so uh, as the soldiers <clears throat> are marching in groups across the countryside, they could snatch up somebody and say, hey, 
you are obligated, and you were obligated by Roman law to carry their burden, their, their backpack, their armor, for one mile. Now, the Jew was accustomed to, because they hated Rome, uh, they would walk the mile, and when they got to that one-mile marker, they'd sling it off, spit over their shoulder, and walk away. Okay? Now, what happens when the Roman knows this is going to happen? What is the relationship between the Roman and the Jewish person who's being forced to be subservient? What becomes that relationship? Antagonistic. It's antagonistic and, un, yeah. And so they find somebody out in the field and they go, <laughs> hey, do, next time you go through Galilee, grab uh, Ryan. He's a real pistol. Uh, <laughs> you'll love how he throws your stuff in the dirt. Um, and uh, it's quite funny. So maybe they got their cell phones out and they YouTubed it or something because it just was a riot act. Um, but all of a sudden, they come through on a Thursday and, and you act a fool because that's, that's your obligation. You can do that. But they come back through on Tuesday after you've heard this sermon. And, and your heart has been changed. You, your attitudes and your motives. And you get to the mile marker and everybody's got their cell phones out ready to watch Ryan lose his stuff. And you don't. And you continue to walk. And you continue to walk. And how much further is this guy going to go? What Jesus is saying, if they make you walk one, go two. What, what do you buy the right to in mile two? What do you And what else? You also get to have a conversation. Oh, you have bought the right to answer the what has happened to you. There is clear evidence in the Gospels that when Jesus died, the Roman soldiers were one of the first people to go, whoa, when Jesus was on the cross, truly this was the Son of God. They didn't just hear about Jesus the week he got crucified. They had been paying attention, perhaps now for three years, to these crazy Jews who used to throw their backpacks and spit. Now they've been walking a mile and two, and they've been hearing, why are you changing this? Because your principle is right. Do more than you're required to. But why? You buy the right to tell people why your heart has been changed, your attitude and motivation. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away him who wants to borrow from you. Now, uh, I think this is very important. If someone has a need and they ask, I think you should, as a Christian, if you are capable, help them as much as you possibly can. However, I do not think, again, this is about attitudes and motivations. I do not think this is supporting uh, a codependent relationship. Uh, sadly, there are people in our world uh, that struggle with certain things or they've learned to be manipulative. And I'm going to tell you what, uh, I can't tell you the number of times on a Sunday morning just before I get ready to preach, someone will walk in the back door of the church and say, can I talk to the preacher real quick? And <clears throat> I, I, just need, I just need $20 to get some gas in my car to get to the next place. Well, I absolutely want to trust people's hearts. Um, but more times than not, I have found that uh, they hit my church in a string of about 10 churches they were hitting that morning. They knew what time we started. They, there was no accident that they knew exactly when to come in. So I would always uh, tell them, hey, look, I'll tell you what, I'm fixing to preach. If you will sit right here, uh, I'd love to talk to you and give you the help you need after the service. Uh, they, they never stayed. They never stayed. Uh, so, uh, so this is not a challenge for us to just to be unwise in our stewardship, but it is a challenge. When people have a need, help them. What's your attitude and motivation towards others? Verse 43, again, Jesus is saying, Now you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Okay, that's what the law said. Love your neighbor. Now how does some of the other gospels word this? Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Uh, that's not how Matthew records it, but when the Jew, when the, and I'm going to point to the Pharisees over here again, when the Pharisees taught you shall love your neighbor, guess what they meant? They had a private interpretation. What do you think they meant when they, when they read the text and they quoted and taught in the synagogues, love your neighbor? Guess what they taught? Anybody? How <coughs> to heaven? What did they teach? Who was your neighbor? A Jew is your neighbor. So the Pharisees quoted scripture but also tacked on. 
You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If your neighbor is a Jew, who's your enemy? Everybody's a Gentile, right? Sadly, in this era, in this day and age that Jesus is preaching, a preferential racism, um, uh, that a preferential racism is good, was taught by the culture within that synagogue and within that culture. You take care of our people. They can take care of themselves. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. This wasn't new information to Jesus' audience. That's how they lived. That's what they knew. Now, let's be very clear. The Romans were brutal to the Jewish people. You couldn't pay your taxes, they'd take your daughter and turn her into a sex slave. They'd take your son or your wife or your property just because they wanted to. These were brutal regimes. And Jesus says, you've heard, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But he says, but I say to you, again, attitude and motivation. He is elevating the law. This is hard. What he's about to say is hard. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's a paraphrasing of, of some Proverbs back in, in the Old Testament. Um, uh, this is seeing the image of God in everyone. This is a hard uh, level of maturity to gain, Okay. And even if you gain this level of maturity where you can look at people and see the image of God in them, it's, 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 like, a, it's like a teeter tot. If you get that thing balanced, just in our own heart and our own preferences, it's so easy to get unbalanced. It's so easy to get unbalanced. Um, uh, but uh, as one preacher I once heard said, if you could see the homeless man, your neighbor, your crazy sibling, that adult person, that, you know, that you're related to, even in their adult years, are crazy. If you could see them the way God sees them, you would see completely different. But we don't see the image of God. We only see the image that you portray, uh, both with the way you present yourself, but also the reputation that you bring with you. That's how we see each other, right? But God says, I need you to see beyond that. I need you to see that they are specifically created in the image of God. And that's what he's getting at here. I went into a convenience store one day, and I talked to everybody. So I just jumped out, and the lady I was paying for my ice, and I was like, well, hey, how are you today? And she'd already been looking me up and down in the store like she hated my guts. And so I was like, I said it, and she just looked at me again, and I thought, I'm going to win this. So I asked again, I said, well, hey, how are you today? And fourth time, she goes, I'm good. <laughs> and she rang me up, and then she talked to me. It was like, you think I'm the enemy? And I thought, I normally would probably just got mad, but instead, I mm -hmm. felt better when I left. Mm -hmm. But my mother was standing there, and she's like, hold on, Michelle, because four times <laughs> I was about to, I said. <laughs> but it changed how she, mm -hmm. I was just trying to be friendly. I was like, I'm not the enemy, mm -hmm. and you're not my enemy. I'm just trying to buy icing. Yeah, and then what flavor did you get by chance? <laughs> okay, all right. But it's just funny because, you know, it's hard sometimes when people act like that, my natural reaction is just... Oh, absolutely, absolutely, especially when we're provoked, all right? Um, I had this conversation with my daughter this week, and this is better, this is easier taught than practiced. She says, well, so-and-so said this thing about me, and how should I act? And I just said, look, it's important in life to get to the, to the area mentally when people act a certain way towards you. It says more about them than it does about you. You're just a target of opportunity, right? And if you're good at what you do, someone's going to find a reason to hate you, right? Um, uh, find a good teacher, and I guarantee you another teacher will feel threatened, Right? Before I landed here at Meadowgrove, uh, we visited a couple churches, and we'd introduce ourselves to the pastor. The minute they found out I had uh, some training, I was treated like competition. It was difficult. It was uh, Pastor Steve here at Meadowgrove Baptist Church. 
Uh, I don't Lewis Wilson Drive, Brad in Mississippi. Uh, <laughs> he was so humble, right? He says, I want you to be part of this. And that's, that's very difficult. Um, but when we look at each other, we've got to look beyond what we're representing uh, or what, what we see represented and see the image of God in them, right? I know we've got some school teachers in here. I don't know how y'all do it. Uh, just look at kids like, y'all are terrible human beings. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, like, Especially those middle school teachers. Yeah. Yeah, man. When they got the kids in the larvae stage, when they look funny and they smell funny and they act stupid. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You got some kids in larvae stages? Me? Yeah. I taught middle school. Yeah, yeah. Our kids were in the larvae stage for a long time. I think, I think my oldest is still there. Anyway. <laughs> He's six foot five. Anyway, uh, verse 46, Jesus continues, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Big, hairy deal. So you like people who like you back. Well, that's easy. Even the Pharisees can get along with that, right? You treat me good, I'll treat you good. Uh, do not even the tax collectors do the same? I, wanna, I giggled at this all week. Who's, write, who's writing this gospel? Matthew. Matthew. And what is Matthew? I wonder when he was writing this 35 years after Christ was in heaven, if he didn't laugh at this. And he kind of, so Jesus is preaching and he's talking to the crowd. He's like, what good are you if you treat people like the Pharisees do, people that are good to you and you treat them good? They're no better than a tax collector. And he looks over at Matthew and kind of does this whole wink. <laughs> kind of like how I insulted you a couple weeks ago. My apologies still. I still live with that shame. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, this tells me uh, the human nature of this book, right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you write out an insult? If you were writing this down, you would like, oh, Jesus didn't insult people, especially me, right? And Matthew's like, no, look. There's a, this is a human book, and Jesus was teaching people, and they hated tax collectors. And by the way, Matthew has not yet in the story been called to be an apostle. He's still working down at the dock. He's still collecting fish tax, right? All his money needs to be laundered because it smells bad, right? And, and he's in the crowd, and maybe he looks over at Matthew, who's not yet a disciple, and he goes, you hear what I'm saying? And so I think Matthew picked up on it. What do you think? Uh, verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Whoa! How do we already regard the Gentiles as enemies? He says, even the Gentiles talk to their people. Don't think that you're somebody in God's eyes because you do the right thing by your own people. Verse 48, therefore, this, ooh, you're talking about elevating the game? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, shoot. All right. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now, flip back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Look what he says here. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? because the scribes and Pharisees are the ones going to heaven. They're sitting over there all smug, and, uh, and Jesus says to the crowds, you guys have got to be more righteous than these people. Oh, there's no chance you're going to get to go to heaven. And they're like, what? These people are going to heaven. Jesus is like, bro, if you knew what I knew. And again, he repeats it in verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by men. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Uh, and then he is going to go about and deconstruct three major factors of the Jewish religious practice, specifically almsgiving, fasting, and praying. Okay? Everyone in the Jewish community at Jesus' age understood that a good religious Jew, a good Pharisee, was really great. The trifecta of religious practice almsgiving, fasting, and prayerfulness, okay? And, and Jesus, here they come. Verse 2, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. And truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. That is to say, uh, when they, their attitude and motivation, okay, they wanted to be religious, 
but their attitude and motivation wasn't holistically about what God wanted in their life. They wanted to be religious. And Jesus is saying their motives and their attitudes are their own reward. When people look around the court uh, of the temple, this is where the, there will be 13 uh, trumpet-like uh, openings, kind of like if you think a big tuba over a top of a box. You would throw your money into that, that open lip, and the money would fall down in, into that thing. And, uh, and we don't understand historically what this sound trumpets in front of you means. Um, perhaps they waited for a certain time to give when everyone's attention was maybe focused at the, at the giving uh, uh, boxes. I, I don't know. Uh, no one else seems to know. They, they've got explanations, but there's no historical documentation of people blasting trumpets. But I think Jesus is kind of using what we would call, don't toot your own horn, right? Uh, uh, my grandfather would say, don't toot your own horn, but sometimes horn's got to be tooted anyway. So, uh, yep. That's my grandfather. That ain't Jesus. Um, uh, but he says, be careful about how you give. What's your attitude and motivation towards giving? He even uses this phrase, verse 3. When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What, what does that mean? Give generously. And how? Anonymous. You can give anonymously, privately. But what, what is the... What is the what is, what is, I mean... How, do, how does your left hand not know what your right hand's doing? What is, what is the attitude and motivation Jesus is teaching about? Don't tell anybody, yeah, even you ought to be able to ta- detach yourself from your giving. Uh, my father's a pastor. I pastored for many years, and um, I called him one time. There was an individual who was going to donate a large portion of money, uh, and, uh, and he says, Caleb, be careful. I said, okay, Why? And he said this, you can never separate a man from his money. Right? And so when, and let me not, let me, heaven forbid, I'm going to get in trouble with this. Forgive me if you have put up a plaque over a Sunday school room in honor or memory of somebody, or you got a pew with a plaque on it, or a stained glass window with in memorial. I'm not throwing rocks at you, uh, but I'm just saying, be careful what your, your motivations are. Right? I, you know, I want, I want to donate all this money to the church, but I need you to call it the Clark Chapel at Meadow Grove, right? So every time y'all have church, welcome to the Clark Chapel at Meadow Grove. Well, that, what's my attitude and motivation in that? Selfish. Yeah, I, I, I want to be acknowledged for what I've done. Jesus is saying, when you give, just give. Let the Lord be the judge. Let the Lord bring, bring the reward. But what happens if you give anonymously? Nobody knows. Well, doggone it. You gave for the right reasons, Yeah, but what if, what if I didn't give for the... What if I just wanted to give? What if I wanted my name on a billboard somewhere? Right? And that's what Jesus is getting at. He says the Pharisees, they're giving. They're giving with a good heart. But they also want acknowledgement from man. And Jesus is coming back saying, no, no, no. What's your attitude and motivation here? Your service is to God. Your giving is to God. Let him figure out what's left. Verse... Uh, Verse 4, so that your giving will be in secret, and then your Father who sees it and done in secret will reward you. Okay? So give publicly. Go ahead. Do it. But just know that whatever feedback you get from humans, that's your reward. If you give privately, the Lord has uh, a a way of protecting and and providing for his people. Verse 5, when you pray, I remember the, the three things, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by them. And truly I say to you that they have their reward in, in full. Now here's what would happen. Uh, you had the morning prayers and the evening prayers. Uh, that was when they offered the sacrifices at the temple. So whenever that time was, the good, devout, religious Jew, wherever they were, would stop and they would pray facing the temple, okay? Daniel did this in the Old Testament. At the, at the morning and the evening sacrifices, he would go into his room, he would open up his doors uh, on his balcony, and he would face towards Jerusalem, and he would pray to God. That's where God's presence was. Uh, during the intertestamental period, that is to say, uh, when the Old Testament closed, but before we get to the Gospels, it's about 450 years, there was the development of what we call the synagogues, all right? 
the I'm getting trouble for this the kind of the Jewish form of what we would go to our local church, okay? And that's where they would go into their local community to study Torah, to study Scripture, and to pray and to do these religious acts. And um, uh, but the Pharisees and the ultra religious got into this habit of doing it. They added another one. They added it at noon. And so uh, morning, noon, and afternoon. And so they developed apparently these habits of being in public places when it was time to pray. So they get right in the middle of the town square. And, you know, the clock strikes 12. And they stop right in the middle of the pedestrian crosswalk, right on the corner of the street, whatever else. But they always seemed to be in public places when they were praying because they needed to be seen. Why? Because their attitude and motivation was religious, not righteous in the way that God had called them to. And, and Jesus was saying, don't do that. Stop it. Now, here's an amazing thing. We'll find out this later in the, in the gospel. Uh, but many of the Pharisees believed Jesus. Many of them did. Many of the Pharisees, they heard this message and they went, you know what? He's right. And they changed their attitudes and motivations to follow Christ. Um, uh, the, the, the night, again, we'll talk about this much later in the future, the night of the, the, the uh, uh, when they arrested Jesus and put him on trial, all the Pharisees weren't called. Guess who they left out? The minority that would have voted against it, right? So they called it by secret. A lot of the Pharisees were coming to know Jesus. Um, and some of them came to him privately going, we don't understand, this is, this is heavy teaching. We thought the law was heavy, but what you're teaching is even heavier. And Jesus goes, hey, bro, follow me. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. You're still trying to do this righteous thing your way. I'm telling you, you got to do this righteous thing my way. All right? Verse 6, when you pray, go into your inner room and close your door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Uh, raise your hand, right hand, high to heaven. Y'all, who y'all really spiritual Christians? Y'all got prayer closets in your house? Anybody, you have that built into your house? All right, y'all didn't, didn't apparently watch that movie, yeah, War Room. Seen that movie, yeah, yeah, I just, Our yeah. house has one. You have a prayer closet? It, uh, or you just call it the laundry room? No, no, no. Pastor lived there before we did. Oh, okay. So, like the utility room. All right. It still has like marker board with like prayers he had written on there. Okay. That's cool. So, but y'all don't have a prayer room, right? Centers, right? Don't. You're not following what G. We're not. You gotta go to his house to pray. Yeah. Um. Is Jesus commanding us here to go find a prayer room in our house? No. What he's saying is the opposite of finding yourself in a public location to show off how spiritual you are. Uh, the literal word here, inner room, literally means like a side closet. It would mean like at, at a marketplace, come off the street, close the door, and just find a place, and, and you and the Father have community, right? Talk to God in private the same way you would talk to a person in public. You're honoring and dignifying that one-on-one -on -one relationship with the divine. And I want to tell you something. Uh, I, I don't like to run, but I, I run, and I, I, will, I will not run without my Apple Watch. Anybody want to guess why? I don't get credit for it if I don't run with my Apple Watch. I, I, I don't, it doesn't tell me my heart rate. It doesn't, I, I don't get credit for it on the calorie burn. I don't get credit for it. I won't run without my, my, my Apple Watch. So you run in my room, I put... I yeah. put like, plastic wrap over it You're with so me. I get the credit for painting. Absolutely. We're getting the credit for all this. This is essentially what the Pharisees were doing. They wouldn't do anything if they didn't get credit for it. And Jesus is challenging those attitudes and motives going, you need to treat me when no one else is around the same way. Right? So that's what he's getting at. Verse 7. And when you're praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, right? Now, this is to not, this is not knocking liturgical prayers. Some of y'all came from a little more liturgical or what we call high church backgrounds, Episcopalian, maybe Methodist, you come from Catholic backgrounds that have repetition in their prayers. 
Um, I had some deacons I served with long ago. They hated written prayers. They thought if it wasn't spontaneous, it wasn't authentic. Well, my brother, I got 150 psalms that, that uh, David and his cadre wrote, and I guarantee you they're, they're inspired by Scripture, and I guarantee you when we're in trouble, don't we all run to them? Yeah, so there's nothing wrong with repeating prayers, but in this case, he's addressing what was happening in these temples of pagan gods where they'd go in and they would they would sway and they would just repeat the same uh, guttural synonym over and over again because they spent so much time there, you know, the, that version of God to them was going to give them credit for it, right? This version calls it babbling. Yes, same, yeah, same concept. Uh, so God's not interested in these long, drawn-out things just to go over and over again. And this is not to knock, though I'm not a fan of them personally, uh, worship songs that repeat themselves over and over again. It's actually an ancient tradition. You've ever heard, heard of the Gregorian chants? Yeah. Right? So it's an, it's an ancient form of singing. Uh, we act like it's brand new. Some people, oh, I just wrote this song. No, you didn't. Bro, they've been doing this for 2,000 years. Um, yeah, but I did it new with a guitar. No, you didn't. Like, you're not even original. Uh, know your history, bro. Check yourself. Um, so he's not, he's not knocking repetitive prayers. He's knocking babbling for no purpose, right? Uh, and he addresses that. Again, what's your heart and your motivation? They suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. So don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask them. Now, the reason why I say that the Sermon on the Mount may not have all been preached at one time is because we have a case in another gospel where the, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, can you teach us how to pray? And then he gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer, uh, but it's not a very accurate representation. It's the model prayer that the Lord gave because uh, Jesus has no need to confess sins or be forgiven. So this is not something Jesus would have prayed all the time. He, wouldn't, he didn't need to. Um, but he gives them a model prayer. Now, uh, one commentator, uh, I, f I found this interesting. He said, I think this models the Ten Commandments. Just like the Ten Commandments are broken into two sections, one section is about God, one is our relationship towards other man, right? We should have uh, no gods before him. We should honor the Lord our God. We should uh, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, all God-based. And then he says, don't lie, don't steal, don't, you know, don't murder. Uh, so, so one section of the Ten Commandments is toward God. The other section of the Ten Commandments is towards our fellow man. Um, and, uh, and so the, this model prayer that Jesus gives that Matthew says is in the Sermon on the Mount follows that sim similar Tra trajectory. Look at it. He says, pray that in this way in verse 9. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? So may the attitudes and motives of heaven be the attitude and motives of the citizens of earth. You see that? Okay. So Whatever's going on up there, we want to go down, down here. If there's worship in heaven, we want worship on earth. If there's generosity in heaven, we want generosity on earth. If there is justice in heaven, we want that justice on earth. As it is in heaven, so it also should be on earth. And then it transitions from Godward to uh, how we should live our daily lives, verse 10, or verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, again, there was some confusion among some of the commentators I read. One person uh, drew the illustration that uh, if you were a servant or a slave of a person and they, they needed to send you on a, on a journey, if it was a one-day's journey, they would give you a one-day ration. If it was a two-day journey, 10-day journey, they would give you that number of rations keeps you still tied to them, right? You got 10 days of food. You're clearly marked as a servant or a slave. You got to go and come back. That's, so there's some who uh, indicated that that may be what Jesus was getting at. 80% of the world population in Jesus' day were slaves, right? We, we have a really big conversation going on in our culture and has been for many, many years about what slavery looks like. In Jesus' day, a vast majority of the world population were considered slaves and would be born a slave and die a slave, right? So when Jesus talks about this kind of stuff, servants, slaves, bond servants, in the culture, it just sounded normal. Like, of course, Bob and, you know, Bob and Harry are both, you know, just like me. We graduated from slave high school, right, together. Um, I mean, it's, it's not even a thing. Um, you got your associates. Okay, yeah, that's right. Um, 
But this give us this day our daily bread may also be a indication of reminding them of the story in the Old Testament of what? The manna. And and God told the, the Israelites out in the wilderness, every morning manna will be out there. By the time the sun comes up, it's all going to be gone. So go out and collect how much? A day's worth, except for on Friday morning. You should collect what? Two. For this day and for the Sabbath. You'll keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. If you collect two on Monday, by Tuesday morning it's going to be rotten. If you collect three on Friday, the Sunday's version is going to be rotten. God protected that. And there's some who say that Jesus is kind of honing in on that. Give us today, today's need. Help us to trust you daily, right? Generally speaking, there are two very hard people, two very hard groups of people to evangelize, the ultra-poor and the ultra-rich, right? Because the ultra-poor are in such poverty and hardship and struggle, and there is so much trauma and ugly and hate at the bottom of the bottom. It's hard for them to understand that there's a God who loves them. But also the ultra-rich, why? I don't need God. You ever promised me heaven? I got a, I got a yacht. It's pronounced yatchet, right? I got a yatchet for a yatchet. Right? I think uh, Jeff Bezos just bought a yacht that came with a smaller yacht to get out to his yacht. Like that's how big the yacht is. Did you hear about this? Yeah, it's yeah. He has. It's a yacht that came with a mini yacht because the yacht was too big to port at certain places. So. A ki- oh yeah, well I don't. I'm it, clearly by my physique, I am not a kayaker. Um, uh, but nevertheless, give us today what our daily bread is. That is not to say that God is opposed to savings accounts, right? We'll talk more about that in just a second. What is He saying? God build in us an ability to trust You, morning by morning, day by day, right? Uh, don't not plan for tomorrow. But just know that tomorrow is not promised. Verse uh, 12, forgive us our debts. Again, so we're not heavenly facing anymore. We're, we're asking God for uh, relationships here. Forgive us where our debts are as we also forgive our debtors. Okay? So pr- God's, Jesus is saying, pray this way. God, forgive us. Help us forgive others. Now, this is a big ask for some people. Okay? This is a big ask for some people. They struggle with forgiving certain people in their lives because there's been so much trauma. Uh, I had a very good friend of mine. Uh, his father was in the Bataan Death March. Those of you who know history, uh, it was a brutal. It, it made the concentration camps almost look like, well, I won't say that. It just it was a brutal, brutal, brutal time. Read your history book. It's terrible. And uh, his father had a hard time understanding this God of mercy because he said, I just don't understand how a God could forgive all of all of my sins, and I, I, as I was sitting with lunch with this gentleman one day, I said, "Mr. We'll call him Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith." I said, "You need to hear something. I don't think your dad was asking how can God forgive me for what I've done. From what he's lived and what he's seen, he's asking. You're telling me God will forgive him? I can understand how God would forgive her, but him, I know what he did." I know. Help us to forgive. Forgive us. Help us to forgive those who have sinned against us or have debts against us. Do not lead us into temptation, uh, but deliver us from evil. I'm going to skip over a portion of this because we need, we need to move. Uh, do you all have brackets around those next words? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Yeah, there's brackets there for a reason. In our earliest and best manuscripts in the Greek uh, of Matthew, these are not here. This is probably... Uh, several hundred years later in church history, they had all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Luke records this phrase, and uh, uh, somebody was probably, you know, some sweet grandma was sitting in the back of the church, and she noticed the, the pastor read the, the, the morning reading, and like, whoa, isn't there supposed to be for yours the kingdom, the power, and the glory in there, amen? Maybe she wrote it in her, in her, uh, her sideline right there, and then, and then she taught her kids. Anyway, the earliest... Actual manuscripts, we can lay hands on them. Um, they're within 100 years of Jesus' life on earth. Um, uh, that phrase is not there. It is in Luke, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because 
So, well, we can talk more about, uh, but what translation do you have? Uh, NIV. Okay, and you? American Yep, that's what I have. Um, NIV is from a different set of uh, manuscripts than the New American Standard. There's two big schools of translation. Uh, your, your King James comes from one section. New American uh, comes from another. And so we can talk more about that fun stuff. Nerd, Bible nerd stuff later. Um, but I got that in the tank one day if y'all want that. Um, nevertheless, verse 14, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, this is not a works-based uh, salvation question here. Right? Sometimes that comes up. Well, if I don't forgive, does that mean I'm not saved? Again, what is Jesus' overarching theme of this sermon? Attitudes and motivations, right? If your attitude and motivation is towards God, right, and it's right, the ability to forgive others will just continue to build in you the ability to forgive those who have hurt you. Uh, and so uh, there, this, that's kind of, part of the attitude and motivation theme that he's going at. Verse 16, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face. Remember, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Those are the three major tenets, and Jesus is coming for that third one. Here he comes. When you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Now, who's he talking about? Pharisees. Pharisees. They're right over there. Look at them. Look how gloomy face they look today. Um, when, you, when you fast, do not put on the gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Again, Jesus says, hey, look, let them do it. But just know, they ain't getting credit with me. The only thing they're getting is when everybody, look, oh, look, oh, he's fasting again. Look at him. Oh, how sad and gray his face looks and so sad and gloomy. He's got on his dirty clothes and he's got greasy hair and he don't even know. And Oh, God bless him. He must be fasting again. He fasts more than anybody I know. God bless him. Um, Jesus says, but you, you, you people, in the crowd, my, my disciples, you're following me. When you fast, I want you to anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I have worked with many godly people who fast, and I will call them, and I'll say, hey, you'll go to lunch today? And they're like, no, 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 I can't do, you know, no, I'm not doing lunch today. I say, you're not doing lunch bro, you need to eat a cheeseburger. What's going on with you? And they felt that it was a sin to even tell someone they were fasting based on their interpretation of that passage right there, right? Don't let anybody know that you're fasting. Is that what Jesus is saying? If the overarching theme is attitude and motivation, what, what is Jesus trying to say? Don't announce it. Yeah. Don't go out of your way. If someone, hey, hey, come out to lunch with me. I, no, I'm, I, I'm good. I'm good. I, I'm doing some, some things over here. Um, if you're doing it to promote yourself, it's wrong, right? If you're doing it, uh, it's okay to let your wife know you're fasting, uh, especially if she made your favorite meal and you're like, I'm not eating that. Uh, like, hey, baby, I'm fasting. It's super spiritual today. Um, yeah. Uh, so, again, Jesus is not making hard and fast rules. He's saying, what's your attitude and your motivations when you do these things of, of service? Mm -hmm. And it's like religious, it makes everybody look bad. Because we're trying to get the Christian thought, but they just say, well, they are religious. But mm -hmm. the people aren't really doing, God's word, they're just, they aren't religious, I guess. Mm -hmm. It always, that hurts us more. Yeah, so the word. if you look at, at the way he's attacked this, right? He says, uh, you know, starting way back in chapter uh, 5, verses 17, he's dealing with issues of, not being angry with your fellow man, uh, being quick to reconcile with them, uh, being quick to reconcile with your spouse, um, uh, uh, not, um, not lying, right? He's talking about everyday relationships. And he's saying, look, they've got the religious aspects na nailing it, but their heart and motivation is far from it, right? Uh, they're, not, they're not getting it. Uh, verse 19 uh, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, I want to point out that I think 
in context, Jesus is addressing a couple of things. Um, I don't think he's inherently talking about money here, right? Because in three different cases, in verses uh, 2, 5, 7, and 16, he has used the phrase, I say to you, they've got their reward in full, right? They are storing up, air quotes, religious equity with the people around them. And Jesus is saying, they, they do all that publicly. I'm telling you, do it privately and store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, how do we do that? With our relationship with, with God, whether where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 4, right? When your giving is in secret. Verse 6, when your prayerfulness is in private. Verse 8, uh, again, when your prayerfulness is in private. Verse 18, when your fasting is done in private. Those are the rewards he's talking about. Like you're storing up this religious, or this spiritual equity with the Father by doing it with the right motivation and the right attitude. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. That makes sense, right? When the light's turned on, you can see things clearly. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Walk through a dark bedroom and see if you don't stub your toe. Right? And that's what Jesus is getting at. He's pointing to the Pharisees going, they think they have light. I'm telling you, follow what I have taught you in this, in this sermon, and you will have light in your eye, and your, you will feel it from the top of your head to the soles of your feet that this is what God intended for you, to be liberated in Christ, to be serving Him, to have the right attitudes and motivation, and experience the forgiveness and the, and the fruitfulness of the Christian life. But if you want to keep doing what the Pharisees keep telling you what to do, you're going to get your reward in full. But I'm telling you, if you want to truly follow me, you don't store up on earth this religious equity. You need to store up in heaven this spiritual equity with God the Father through me, Christ the Son. Verse 24, and we'll, we'll pause here this morning. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve... God, and my, my Bible says wealth, but the, the actual word is mammon, um, which uh, there are many scholars who believe that mammon was a personified idol representing wealth, you know, kind of like if you eat, was it collard greens and ham hocks at New Year's, you'll be, you won't be hungry and you'll be wealthy all year. Uh, there must, there seems to be indication that there was a, a worship center somewhere in the Gentile community where they worship this God, he brought them prosperity. Um, and Jesus was using that as an analogy, saying they're, they're worshiping, these Pharisees over here, they're worshiping all the accolades they're giving. They're building up earthly wealth, whether that's money or not, you know, reputation. And I'm saying don't store up for Serve God, not your own agenda, not your idol of wealth, what you think wealth is. Um, and so we're going to pause there.